Greg Rubel of Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We want to thank you for your interest in God's Word and this message. We pray that God puts it into your heart. Good morning. Good to be with you today, and I just feel honored to be here, that uh, your pastor and those of you who are leaders here would ask me to come and be with you. I was here just a few months ago thanking you for all of your work <clears throat> and support of our ministries throughout the world, and uh, you support several of those ministries. Uh, as I was getting dressed this morning... And I was thinking of you, I was thinking of your pastor, not when he was a pastor, but when he was a young man, I think maybe on his first mission trip, and he was standing by a pile of dirt with a shovel in his hands in in, uh, Carpina, Brazil. He was hand-digging the foundation of our first community church in Brazil. That's probably iconic to the life of your pastor and the leaders that uh, at Brookville Road and then, of course, uh, here at Living Streams. And uh, very grateful for the years and years that you have supported our work and now especially our, our work in the Mediterranean of Northern Africa and uh, persecuted countries, and uh, uh, appreciate what you're doing. We're having great reports from those persecuted countries of God blessing and, and, and success. And so thank you for your continued support. I want to introduce you to uh, my intern, uh, Joe Badger, and I just wanted him to share a moment with you. Uh, Joe, could you share with these folks... Uh, what your life was like a uh, couple plus years ago before you met the Lord? Well, um, I grew up in a single mother home, um, pretty much raised by my grandmother and my brothers and sisters. Um, it was full of drugs, alcohol, through my youth, and Lots of issues and problems. And uh, your family, uh, it wasn't just you that were involved in drugs. You were involved in drugs and alcohol because that's where your family was at. Pretty much all of your family, those were challenges that they had and have. Yeah, it goes back many generations from um, my grandmother being an alcoholic 
to my father being alcoholic. Um, him and my brother, or him and his brothers, um, was in some form of addiction, be it um, just smoking pot to shooting heroin to uh, cocaine. And for me, it was cocaine, alcohol, meth, and each generation led the next generation to use drugs by um, doing it in front of them and participating and sharing what they had with the younger kids. And this led to your family being pretty much, I, I think I've heard you describe, pretty broken. What was your family like? Um, There was no faithfulness, um, even among each other. Um, we'd steal from each other. Um, many years of divorce, and uh, even from great grandparents to today, um, every one of us has been married at least once, sometimes three or four times. So that, from that background, uh, you've had a life-changing experience with Christ. How did that happen? Well, I, my mom's mom, my maternal grandmother, um, she's a believer in Jesus Christ, and um, she would um, tell me about Jesus as a young child, and sent me to Sunday school with one of her friends that was my Sunday school teacher. And that was the first time I heard about the Lord. You learned about the Lord uh, a lot on flannel graphs and Sunday school and, yeah. and vacation Bible school. Do you remember flannel graphs, somebody? Huh? Huh? And in the last year, you learned something about one of those Sunday school teachers you had, they kind of blew you away when you learned uh, what she had done. Yeah, um, I was at a friend's funeral. He had um, died of a heroin overdose. And um, a mutual friend of ours was there, and his grandmother was my first Sunday school teacher. And he said, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, my grandmother carries your picture in her Bible, and she prays for you every day. So for over 40 years, this woman's prayed for me over and over and over again, having faith that one day Jesus Christ would save me. So what's your life like since you made that choice to give your life to the Lord uh, a couple of years ago? Well... The Lord's showed me nothing but favor since um, the day, well, the evening, that um, he brought to memory the flannel graphs and the songs that I'd sing in Sunday school and how they taught us how to ask Jesus in our heart. And I fell to my knees and I cried out to him that um, 
He would take this disease of alcoholism and drug addiction out of my life and that he would accept me as his own. And ever since then, he provided me with this family that took me in. And um, they showed me what a family was. They actually sat at their kitchen table and had meals together. Um, they prayed together every day. And um, they talked to one another without cursing and cussing at each other. And um, it was, he showed me what family meant. And he's just opened the doors and I had a, another lady that really took a shine to my family um, before I was saved and she would just love on us continually. And here about a couple weeks ago, I went and visited another church and we ran into each other. And for the last 10 years, she's been praying for me for my salvation. So um, the Lord just keeps revealing to me how people, even when I was in my worst, he had people working on me. Um, tugging at my heart and calling out to him for my life. And so he's had a calling on me since I was a young child. But the Lord's patient. And Lord willing, next month I'll be going to Brazil with Pastor Gary. And um, he just um, showers me with blessings of prayer and meeting godly people that just surround me and lift me up and um, encourage me and makes me a better person. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate you opening your heart. Thank you, buddy. And over the last several, uh, last couple of months, Joe's been special training to be uh, a recovery substance abuse coach. And yesterday he got his certificate, and we're, we're proud of him. I uh, thought I'd just share a few things. Uh, if you're, Since you're kind of required, I mean, you can get up and leave any time you want, but you're kind of required to listen to me here for a few minutes. And I uh, thought it might be helpful for you to know something about uh uh, who you're going to listen to. Um, one of my greatest accomplishments is that I have uh, four adult children, and uh, of which uh, uh, they have been the wonderful blessing in my wife and I's life. I married my high school sweetheart. Um, we started going together when we were 15, and um, I'm just thankful for her uh Following through so many times when I would share some great adventure I thought we ought to start on, you know, she would often say, you're crazy. And, and, and yet she walked along with me uh, through those. And I'm just grateful for Carol and the blessing that she is in my life. And I have uh, four 
grandchildren. My grandchildren attend Mount Vernon, so we're in uh, Marauder com- country right now, I know. And uh, I'm so thankful uh, for my family. And <clears throat> so that's a, a little bit about me. World Renewal is uh, almost 34 years old. And when we began, uh, I was uh, pastoring a college church in Kansas. Uh, the college was Barkley College. Had a young assistant pastor working quarter time um, named Hubert Nolan. I had interns uh, like Paul Ramoser and Mark Wright and folks like that. Uh, who were um, there on my staff, some of them doing academic uh, requirements and, and that sort of thing. But then when we came to start World Renewal, all those folks uh, had jumped in and helped us. So we're kind of all the same tribe. And uh, it's it's been fun doing that sort of thing. Um uh, Joe's a part of Celebrate Recovery, and and of course uh, Shane is the one who started what has been the largest Celebrate Recovery in the state of Indiana uh, at, at Brandywine, and where literally hundreds of people's lives have been saved, literally saved, and uh, he was the founding pastor of Celebrate Recovery. And his daddy, Ned, one of my closest friends, and who was our director of operations for many years. And so you're all family to me, whether you know me or not. Uh, you're my part of my family, and I'm, I'm grateful to, to be here and honored to be here. Um, what's that noise? It's a strange noise, not one that you're used to. Uh, hard to identify that noise. And they, they looked around the banquet hall and listened. The rhythmic, scratching, dragging, strange noise. And they looked at each other and whispered and said, what is that? What is that? And soon they realized what it was. The strange noise, the strange sound was this disheveled looking human being. They were crippled. The, the strange noise was the crutches and the leather on the on the sandal scraping against the stone and he entered the banquet hall and everybody looked at each other who is this who is that and then he heads over towards the chairs at the dinner table and they thought, oh my, he, 
he doesn't know where to set. And yet, as he went in that direction, they thought, oh. <laughs> you see, the banquet hall was full of the king's children, the king's court, the king's men. And they all kind of lost their breath as he, as he went and he sat where the king's children sat. Not only that, he, oh my, he went and sat in the chair right next to where the king sits. What a mistake. Oh my. I think it had to happen something like that. Uh, I suppose that the king's court, kings don't necessarily, I think, they didn't feel necessary to communicate everything they were doing. (laughs) That's just my suspicions. But it had everything to do with a story. They went back to the king, and a prince. I would like to read to you that slide from 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I'll be using a New Living Translation. And the conversation is between Prince Jonathan. His daddy was the king, King Saul. And it was you, he was looking at his closest friend who would someday be king, King David. And Jonathan says to David in one of those very strange haunting moments, Jonathan says to David, May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. What a strange conversation between Prince Jonathan and the shepherd boy, military, singer, songwriter, David. There's a key word here that you may or may not know. He said, if I die, he, he, was, he was a soldier, a courageous soldier. Some of his, his uh, boldness and courage are some of the most awesome passages of scripture, Jonathan. But he seems to sense maybe his days are not long. Even though he's young, he said, Hey, buddy, I know someday you're going to be king. And when you become king, don't forget, if I die, would you promise me you'll take care of my family? Now, we all 
have probably had similar arrangements and conversations. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, you've probably had conversations where you looked across at somebody you really trusted and say, hey, if, if I'm gone, will you help out my family? Will you take care of them? That's what this conversation was. Only he uses a word that is hard for us to comprehend. He said, but if I die, treat my family with this faithful love. And he uses the Hebrew word, hesed, H-E-S-E-D. There is no word even close in English that's comparable to the kind of love hesed is described in Hebrew. It is so multi-layered, it is so vast, that even the Greek word in the New Testament, agape, which is the greatest form of love in the New Testament, which means beyond just feelings, but where a person, where we choose to love someone no matter what. It, it, it's kind of what we have in marriage and, and with parents, where you say, I'm going to love you unconditionally, no matter what. I'm not going to quit loving you, no matter what you do. You're stuck with my love forever. He said is even bigger than that. It has to do with, with such everlasting unconditional, awesome love. And, and that's what Jonathan is begging his friend for. If I die, would you show this great love for my family? Jonathan is killed in battle with his dad, King Saul. And David does become king. And we fast forward to the young, early days of King David. And David said to his court, his staff, his advisors, in chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, he says, is there anyone... Is there anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show, he said, love, for Jonathan's sake. And he summoned a, named, a man named Ziba. I really like lead, reading this verse, Suzanne, just so I could say Ziba. I, I like that word. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ziba, who had been of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked, yes, sir. Now, Ziba had been Saul's man. He was the one that he trusted, that king Saul. And so he says to him, uh, ask him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's, he said to them. And Ziba replied, yes. One of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Fast forward to chapter 4 of Second Samuel. Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth. Well, that's hard to say on an early morning, isn't it? Notice each time 
this guy is mentioned. His physical challenge is mentioned. Who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him. And he became crippled. Mephibosheth was five years old. By the way, that was not his name given at birth. At birth, his name meant someone who would overcome the idols and prophets of Baal. It was a It was a great warrior, victorious, conquering name. He was five years old the day that news came. Your grandfather, the king, your daddy, the prince, are dead. They've been defeated in battle, and that meant run for your life. Because... That meant that the victorious army would sweep in and kill everyone that was a part of the previous king's family. And so his nurse picked him up to, now he's five years old, that's, you know, that's picking up someone fairly big. And somewhere in that escape plan, it went wrong and he was dropped and feet and legs were broken. And they were on the run. And so things they didn't have the kind of care that we would have today. And he, for the rest of his life, was crippled. And so David's hearing this for, I think, the first time. This was not information he knew. One family member left that he could show he said to and honor that battlefield conversation. And he says, where's he at? And Ziba says, he's in Lodabar. (laughs) Now let me tell you something. If you're going to go on vacation, you're not going to choose Lodabar. It was on the east side of Jordan. Lodabar means barren pasture. No trees, no grass. Everything's brown. It's burned. There's no vegetation. And the only reason you would go to Lodabar would be to hide. You see, also, usually, in this day and time... When a new king like David would become king, he would seek out and kill everybody that was a part of the previous king's administration and family so that he would get rid of any possible enemies that would try to harm him and his new kingship. And so the boy, the crippled boy who was very helpless, got his way to Lodabar, a place where nobody would go. And that was the point of it. So David said, where's he at? Lodabar. And so he sent Zeba to get him. Can you all say Zeba? Yeah, it's fun. 
Yeah. So David sent for him and brought him from Micah's home. His name was Mephibosheth. Do you know what Mephibosheth meant? It's not his birth name. It meant one who scatters shame. You see, in this day, a lot of times when somebody had something wrong, remember Job's friends and their reaction to his physical problem and to his his financial problems, his family problems? They all said, you must have done something wrong. Now, that that exists in our culture today. (laughs) When somebody keeps having tragedy after tragedy, we often think, boy, what did they do wrong? Well, in that day, that's, that's what usually people thought. And so he was a man of shame. He was part of the previous administration who... King, his grandfather had acted in such contrary ways to God, and then bad things happened, and now he was crippled. He's hiding in Lodabar. So the king sent <laughs> and into his court before the throne comes Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground. Can you picture this? The crippled guy coming into the king's court. Fabulous court. And what does he do? He gets down on the ground. Not easy when you're crippled, believe me. You can get down, but boy, can I get up. Uh, he bowed down to the ground in deep respect and said, and, and David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth said, I am your servant. And David could tell from his voice, from the way he acted, this man thought his hour had come. How many years he had lived in Lodabar waiting for that knock at the door when the king would find out where he was at and end his life, his miserable life. How many years he had lived in fear that that day would come. And now here he was in his world before the most powerful man who had in his hands his life or death. He's frightened and David sees it. And said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he immediately says, I intend to show Heset. I intend to show great love and kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. (laughs) I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat here with me. At the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Hmm. How was his self-esteem doing? 
a dead dog like me. Now, I can tell you in his culture, the lowest thing was a dog. A dead dog. In verse 12, I love it. Chapter 9. Mephibosheth had a young son named Mika. From then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, notice over and over, it mentions his challenge, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. The opening scenario of the cripple dragging himself into the banquet hall, finding his way to where he had been instructed to sit at with the king's children at, right next to the king. Can you imagine going from Lodabar to the king's table, the king's children, and being adopted as one of the children of the king, and he be instantly... He re-inherits all of his grandfather's vast estate and fortune, and he is reestablished as a human being and being honored. Wow. Hmm. Isn't that a great story? Do you like that? Me too. <laughs> Let's fast forward now to the New Testament. You know, Jesus, when he came, he, he, he brought a lot of controversy. If Jesus was walking around physically today, he would be one of the most controversial people we've ever heard of. Things he did, things he said. And I want to talk about one of the things he said so often. Do you remember when the disciples, after Jesus was crucified, even after he was resurrected, after he was crucified on the cross and resurrected, you remember Simon Peter trying to put this all together and, and he had failed the Lord. The Lord had told him, you're going to fail me before the rooster crows. And, and indeed, three times he did and... And then when the rooster crowed, he and Jesus looked at each other. It says that Simon Peter went out and wept bitterly. He couldn't believe he'd done what he'd done. Have you had those moments with you and Jesus? You and God, where you say, I can't believe I did what? I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I failed you like that. And even after Jesus resurrected from the dead... It was so confusing to them. Why not? I don't think I would have been on top of my game either, would you? And one day Simon Peter said to the other guys, I'm going fishing. And they all go, good idea. We'll go fishing. And the Bible says, you know this story. It says they went out and fished all night. Now this wasn't throwing out, you know, your rod and rear. Real. This, this was... Throwing out the net, hard pulling, tugging. It was wet, cold, nasty. And it said they fished all night. And how much did they catch? 
Nada. Nothing. And the sun begins to come up. Now here is someone on the shore, and we know, because we've read the book or seen the movie, right? It was Jesus. And what did Jesus say to those discouraged, cold, wet, grumpy fishermen who'd caught nothing all night? (laughs) Jesus calls from the shore, and he has a great theology statement. He said, you got anything to eat? Got anything to eat? What's that? This is a great moment of this is the resurrection. These are these 40 days after this is important time. And Jesus is saying, got anything to eat? Honestly, it's it's something he often said. Got anything to eat? Well, no, they didn't have breakfast. Jesus said, hey, you guys, come on. I'll fix your breakfast. And they they uh, made their way to shore, and breakfast he did make. And it's been a breakfast that's been talked about ever since. Jesus, in the middle of all different kinds of controversy, huge spiritual moments, great history, Jesus would often say, let's eat. Or do you have anything to eat? (laughs) Got anything to eat? Why was Jesus killed? Leonard Sweet says, Jesus was killed because of his table talk and his table manners. (laughs) The stories he told and especially the people he ate with. Remember the tax collector, Levi? He had the most lucrative tax booth that you'll read about in the New Testament. He was down by the water. That meant he could tax all the shipping that came in and out over the water. Uh, he was the kind, the Bible says, that did not hire somebody to sit in the booth. He liked to set it in the in booth himself because he was able to pad his pocketbook hugely that way. Fortunate for him, it's also down by the water where somebody did some awesome ministry. All the people that passed through his booth, coming and going, had stories to tell about the ministry, the beach ministry of that one called Jesus Christ. He heard it all. He'd been taught since he was a little boy, going to the rabbis' schools, that there was a Messiah coming and sitting there in his tax booth. One day, Jesus comes by and said, Follow me. And Levi got up 
left his lucrative business. And that night threw a huge party. And at the party he invited what was the most sinful, non-church-going people that he knew. It was full of other tax collectors, other people who were considered unpatriotic to Israel. They were people of immoral sexual sin. They were thieves. Those were the kinds of friends he had. In fact, that were the only friends he had. And they were not allowed to actually go into the temple to worship and sacrifice. They were non-churchgoers. They were far from God. And that's who was at Matthew's house that night. And Matthew decided that the guest of honor that night would be the one that he would end up following and dying for, Jesus of Nazareth walked into the room. Levi gave a large dinner at his home for Jesus. Everybody was there, taxmen and other disruptible characters as guests at the dinner. Now, the most spiritual people of the day, and they seemed like Jesus' enemies, they really were not. They were the most spiritual people of the day. The Pharisees and the religious scholars came to his disciples and greatly offended, said, What is he doing eating and drinking with crooks and Sinners and sinners here, you need to, it, it, it meant people of sexual sin. He said, what is Jesus doing eating with these folks? Let's see. Jesus heard about it. Spoke up. And said, who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick. I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders. An invitation to a changed life. Changed inside and out. It was the constant, most highly critical of Jesus and his ministry was who he hung out with. Why are you with these people? Four years ago, my wife and I and some friends said, we're tired of seeing people die of heroin overdoses. They go to rehab, they come out, and they don't have any place to go, so they go back to where they got in trouble. And they often die. Because when they've been clean for months, that's when they're most vulnerable. Their body can't take what they used to do. I remember standing by a young girl's casket and looking over at one of my friends and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember we went to the the officials in Greenfield and said, we, we need to build a recovery house for women. And they had fancy ways of saying it. 
But it was, we do not want those people here. And we wanted to say, you are talking about your children and your grandchildren and your friends. I'm thankful September 1st will open the Women's Recovery House in Greenfield. It's called Talitha Kohn. Do you recognize those two words? They were words that Jesus said to the little dead girl when he said, little girl, rise up. We don't want those people here. Jesus wanted those people. And one thing he constantly did, he invited them to have lunch, breakfast, dinner. It was where he did his heavy lifting in ministry. He would say, hey, want to have lunch? Well, sometimes he was so bold as say, you know, can I come over to your house? I wrote down just some of the meal times of ministry Jesus had. If you can put the slide up, meals of the New Testament. There's... That's not all. That's just a few. Jesus started his ministry at a wedding reception where his mama came and said they ran out of refreshments to do something. The Matthew potty. That's what I call it, the party. We need to have Matthew potties where we invite our friends who are far from God, whose lives are all wrecked and broken, we need to invite our friends and have party at our house and, and make Jesus the guest of honor. You say, I, I don't have very many friends like that. Jesus fed the 4,000, the 5,000. Zacchaeus, the, the Last Supper, the, the guys on the road to Emmaus, where when Jesus entered... They said, come on in and have supper with us. They went in, and when Jesus broke the bread for the first time, they go, wow, this is Jesus. I know. And then he goes, didn't our hearts burn within us? You see, it was over the table that these things happened. Peter's restoration breakfast. I got a little video that describes what I'm talking about. I think you'll enjoy it. And for some of you, this will take you back to some years ago. That certainly brings back precious memories for me, sitting around my grandparents' um, dining room table. Uh, there were seven of us grandchildren on my maternal grandparents' side. And I can say sitting around that table was where I learned who I was, uh, what my family was, what we believed in, what we thought was important, what our values were. Because of the stories that were told over and over, with much laughter, even laughing to the point of tears, as they told stories on each other, they were not just they were not necessarily spiritual stories 
they would just tell stories on each other. And then finally they would get around to the Jesus talk. And that's where I fell in love with Jesus. Listening to my family talk about him. <clears throat> when God designed human beings, he designed them so they had to eat. I'm a, a student of cultural anthropology, and all cultures all over the world have some similarities when it comes to everybody has to eat. Most eat at least two meals a day. Most do not eat three meals a day like we Americans. Most just eat two, and some are feel fortunate to eat one. But when they eat, it's a time of uh, of joy, a time of uh, of satisfaction. It's where they relax, and in cultures all over the world, they talk. And they talk about life. Sixty years ago, the average family during dinner, about time I was born, in, in around 1950, dinner time took 90 minutes. Today, 12 minutes. Studies show, however, that, that family dinners where teens have three or more times per week. And let me tell you, if today you can sit around the table three times a week with your family and you got teens, you're doing monster uh, grand champion job because everything's against you, Mom. And this is not just for you moms. This is for moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas. If you can get them around the table three times a week, they're less likely to be overweight they're, they are more likely to eat healthy foods, perform better academically, are less likely to engage in risky behaviors, and they have better relationships with their family, with their parents. But it's really hard to get around the table. Jesus said kind of last words in the Bible. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear me and open the door, I'll come in and sit down with supper. <laughs> Jesus was always saying, let's go to lunch. Let's eat. Today he'd be leaning over and saying, hey, let's go to Lincoln Square. I'll meet you there at noon. Or he would say, when you invited him to your house, here is another wretched, crooked man, Zacchaeus. Jesus goes to his house for many that wanted to like Jesus. It was the last straw. He bypasses the people of Jericho and their banquet for Jesus. And he goes to the traitor's house, Zacchaeus, 
And and he, he goes home with Zacchaeus. And he's sitting there at Zacchaeus' house. And something transpired during that mealtime where Zacchaeus looked across at the table and said to Jesus, You've got me. I'll go make amends to the people I've cheated. I'll give my money back. I'll give them many times money back. I'm going to go make amends. I'm going to go do this and that. I'm going to make right the things I've done wrong. And Jesus, looking at Zacchaeus' open billfold, said, Wow, today salvation has come to this household. Is he in that relaxed atmosphere... At the table, we open up and we talk and we listen, and our lives are changed when we're sitting with godly people. Or we're the godly person sitting and opening wide, saying, Come sit next to the king you're a child of God come sit next to him he's got a place just for you he has prayed, prepared the great he said love of God he wants you you are his adopted child quit living in Lodabar come on back here come sit at the table you're one of the king's kids now start acting like it We who know him, who sit at his table, have the privilege of bringing those who are unaware. They've been living in Lodabar. They've been crippled. Life has crippled them. Many times it's not their own fault, but they're hurt, crippled, and they need somebody. They need a brother or a sister to say, hey, you missed meal. We got it for you. Come, come, come sit at the table. And when they're sitting at the table, you begin to break the bread like the guys on the road to Emmaus. And suddenly Jesus is revealed. We don't have to reveal Jesus. That's not our job. He's really good at revealing himself. But we have to get them at the table. We have to get them someplace. And, you know, isn't it amazing? He built this into our life. you got to eat at least a couple times a day. You sure go get too low? Yeah. Need to eat a couple times a day. But I don't eat alone. Bring somebody from Lodabar to your table. Or maybe the one from Lodabar is you. You've been living in Lodabar hiding because you're crippled and hurt and broken. Got a chair for you. The big boss wants you. And when you come into his room, he's going to announce that you're his boy. You're his girl. And like Mephibosheth, he wants you to sit at his table from then on as his child. And so what do we do? We invite Jesus to our table Make sure yours is a, is a Jesus table.
Make sure your table is where Jesus' talk goes on. (laughs) Invite those near to God to your table. It's where discipleship can happen so well. Sitting around the table, doing Jesus' talk. If you talk about him, he'll show up as the guest of honor. If you just talk about him. Invite those who are not near God to your table. This is where Jesus did it. There were few that walked away from his table and went back to Lodabar. And for yourself, find someone that you could have a learning table. They know more about it than you do. And so you spend time with them at the table. (sighs) So how about you, my friend? I don't know what kind of table you have. I don't know where, if you live in Lodabar. I don't know if you have friends that live in Lodabar. If you know Jesus, you should have friends who live in Lodabar. It will require you being more intentional about that than maybe anything else in your life. But you need to have friends who live in Lodabar who are far from God. Because he wants you to invite them to the table. To say today as we close, I just sense that maybe you're not here by accident, and I'm not here by accident. Maybe you need to refresh yourself with him. And just say, I want to spend time at your table. I need to. And I haven't been. In fact, there are some of us who, who've sat at the king's table, but we kind of have been spending too much time in Lodabar. I didn't mean to. If you're like me, I don't mean to, but I do. I feel so blessed. The video described pretty much my family. We didn't have the Leviticus rules, but I've been blessed. And my Bible says, when he blesses me, I'm to be a blessing to others. Let's just pretend that the front of this church is the table. Isn't it interesting that we practice the Lord's Supper? Come to the table. Jesus said every time you do this, do it in what? (laughs) And as history closes, Jesus said... We're going to set at a table. And we're going to start a new history. But first we're going to set at the... 
great table, the married supper of the Lamb. Doesn't it make you want to spend time with him? What you've heard today? What we've gone over? Doesn't it make you want to go, wow, I'm anti-Lodabar here. I want to be at this table. Could we just spend some time here at the end in prayer and treat this like a table? And if you want to come and kneel and just say, Jesus... Thank you for inviting me to your table. I'm sitting in the seat right beside you. I need to spend time with you. Or maybe we're saying, Lord, I need to be more intentional about making friends with Lodabar people. Because I don't have that many to invite to the table. I've asked them to, uh, you know, some boys up here at Anderson College, they put together a band. And and, uh, when I got this message, I got to looking around and found those boys that started out. I think their first gig was a pizza parlor or pizza party in one of the dormitories at Anderson. Um, They're going to be our music for while we pray. Feel free to come, and then I'll close in prayer. But if you've been living in Lodabar when you know you shouldn't have been, just come and talk to him. 